Good morning, my name is Justice Almeida, and like Chris said, we're gonna be reading from Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, and it can be found on page 835 in your pew Bible. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time. Jesus, now would you speak to us the same way you spoke to your early followers. This commission you gave to them, we believe, applies to us. So we help us receive it. Help us take it in in ways that change us. Help us align our hearts with it. We may have lots of obstacles and reasons why we're resistant or unaware. So God, would you help us this morning? Would you, would you speak into where we are as a church and where we are individually um, and make us a people that, that live into these words. Holy Spirit, give us faith to believe and then speak, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, to help us jump into this, um, I wonder if you could think with me about two different kinds of events that you experience in your life. Some that the event actually is the end of the thing, it's the culmination of the thing. So maybe think about like a graduation or a big presentation you have at work. You've been working really hard, you've been studying, you've been preparing maybe for, for years actually, and then there's this moment, this event, and it kind of caps the experience. There are other kinds of events, though, that are the beginning of something. So think about weddings or, or babies being born. Uh, that, that event, there's been preparation for it, no doubt, but it is the beginning of something new and something more. I say that because I wonder how you experience the resurrection of Jesus. Last week at Easter, we celebrate this empty tomb and we talk about the implications of what it means that we have a risen Messiah who, who isn't just dead, who didn't just teach us some things, didn't just live an exemplary life that was a model for us. He actually is alive and, and he's changing everything. He's ruling and reigning. The tomb is empty, therefore God is real and we can have a relationship with him. And I wonder what this week felt like. If that news feels like that first category or if it feels like that second category. And, and I don't say it in any sort of like condemnation or shame, but I wonder if you could look back over the week and see were there differences this week because of what you heard about the resurrection. Can you trace like beginnings and shifts and differences, some, some places where you saw maybe suffering differently, you saw temptation differently, you saw people around you differently. Can you trace last week Places where things were different, they, they were shifted because of what you heard, rather than something that we just celebrated and memorialized and commented on. Again, there's zero like condemnation in that, but I would love for it to be an invitation to explore, an invitation just to ask, to examine our hearts and go, is it possible that we, we read about this earth-shattering event like it's something that happens that surely is shaping some stuff, or was it the beginning of something that changed everything. 
And as I asked that, I realized like we have different responses to the resurrection, just like they do here in this passage, right? So if you look with me down here in verse 17 of chapter 28, what you see is Jesus gathers his disciples and you see this mixed response that says that some worshiped and some doubted. So maybe as you look back over your week, you just were full of all kinds of questions like, did this really happen? Could this really happen? If it happened, then what does that mean for me? What does that mean for our world? Why are things still so broken in some ways? And why why are they actually changing in other ways? Maybe you experienced looking back on the resurrection partly with some worship and partly with some doubt. Commentators will talk about what this is going on in this space here, who these were. Is it just the 11? Is it a larger crowd? And they're wondering, can you mix together both worship and doubt? My experience surely shows that you can. There's places of of belief and unbelief in the same space. And so maybe maybe that would describe you a little bit. Or maybe it's been mostly just doubt. You were here, you celebrated with us, you sang, you appreciated it. But the rest of the week, you've put it in this historical category, not in this real life changing category. It could be because of suffering you've experienced. And you would be saying, well, if God is real and is alive then this suffering wouldn't have happened. And so that's creating some kind of doubt. It could be just the biases you have of the worldview that you were born into. You just don't believe in a supernatural world. You've been convinced that all there is in the world is what we can see and touch. And so your biases won't let you imagine that there could be something like miracles or a God who intervenes in our world. That could be the source of some of your doubt. It could be that you look around the world and watch Jesus' followers and say, man, If this is what it means to be a resurrected people, then I have all kinds of questions, all kinds of doubts of their behavior and their inconsistencies. Maybe it's even in your own slow change, in your own transformation that's taking some time to actually play itself out. And you keep saying, if there really was a living God, the resurrection happened, so death is over, sin is over, the power has been broken, then why am I still struggling with all these things? You may have lots of reasons for for doubt. I put myself in the disciples' shoes and there would be doubt based on like what actually happened. Like there's probably some fear, right? These were not sterile events. These are, are drastic, dramatic, violent events that would create some, some fear which would foster all kinds of doubt. Maybe there's some regrets they have that they let Jesus down and so they, they doubt what will happen when they meet him. They abandoned him. They walked away from him. They They denied him. And so what happens when they see him again? Will he welcome them? Will he accept them? Maybe they feel let down by Jesus. Maybe there's anger in that space where he made these promises about his kingdom and then he died and they're super confused. There's a lot going on in this text. And it's into that space that Jesus gives some teaching that I think orients our hearts around who he is and what he did and what it means for us to be his people. I want to walk through these words kind of with this backdrop of worship and doubt, wondering for you what was different this week, because I want to ask what it means for us to be a resurrected people. What's different a week later? How do we live into what Jesus actually accomplished for us? And so I want to just use three quick points. I want us to see it's all about him. I want us to see his power, his purpose, and his presence, and just unpack quickly what what he's calling them to and then we'll pray that God would help us actually live into it. So, so look with me in verse 18 now of Matthew 28. It's on page 835 there if you've closed that pew Bible. After this acknowledgement of their humanity, of, of their mixture, of their, of their doubts and their worship, Jesus came and he said to them, first his power, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Jesus starts with reminding them who he is. Following Jesus is all about Jesus. Being a resurrection people is all about him. Even for me to ask you to examine your life isn't for condemnation or for ranking or earning enough points. Did you do enough for God to love you? It's simply asking, are you living in light of what he's already done? He says it's all about him. Like all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. We've encountered this idea of Jesus's authority and power in other places throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew, right? his miracles all show a kind of authority and a kind of power. Even the beginning of the book with his genealogy, tracing it all the way back to the early fathers and the, the patriarchs, all the way down to King David, he's saying this is one who was born in the kingly line. There's, there's authority there. You see the wise men come and bring gifts right, to pay homage to this king is a tip to authority. You see Herod threatened by this little child, which is about authority. We see Jesus promised and tempted with false authority in the desert in Matthew 24 when Satan has him after 40 days of fasting saying, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you everything. So there's this promise of like a faux authority. Jesus even sends his disciples out earlier like in Matthew 10 and he tells them, hey, I'm giving you the same authority I have to go cast out demons, to go go heal people, to go engage in the world around you. So this this text has been about the authority and the power of Jesus already, but it's at the cross of Jesus where Scripture is explicitly clear that God showed his power to defeat sin and death and to shame, the way the Scriptures say, the, the principalities and powers of the world that have this grip on our hearts, that have the allure of temptation, that actually promise us a kind of control and pleasure and joy and fulfillment if we'll just follow whatever temptation they would put in front of us. These these spiritual beings that have power, Jesus actually defeated them on the cross. This will be kind of fast, but maybe write these down. I'm going to take you to four passages that just talk about the kind of power one. It's on page 976 there in that pew Bible. We'll start in verse 15. Ephesians 1, 15 says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to rule and authority. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fulfillment of him who fulfills all things. The New Testament early witness was this authority of Jesus is a cosmic authority. And it's on the cross that he proved and demonstrated his power over all the principalities and powers. We see this again in Colossians. If you want to flip over just a couple of pages to page 903. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the preeminent one. He's the one who who rules over everything. Everything was made for him and by him. And if you flip over to chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus, and what he had accomplished on the cross. So this power that Jesus says he has isn't just something that a baby has, isn't something that a lineage has, isn't something that a miracle worker has. It's someone that has actually defeated the principalities and powers of the universe. That's the kind of authority that he says he has. We would see it again in Hebrews chapter 10. 
If you want to flip that direction, Hebrews chapter 10, it's back now, I'm going in order, but it's a few books to the right. It's on page 1006. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 14. He's going to contrast the kind of authority and role a priest has versus Jesus as the great high priest. He says a priest comes and stands daily and gives service. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is the authority that God has over the universe. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. You see this theme, not just of like defeating them publicly, but actually ruling and reigning and subjugating the things that taunt you, the things that haunt you, the things that actually you feel plagued by. When Jesus says he has authority over everything, those very things that seem to actually be competing for your affection Jesus defeated publicly and cosmically and eternally. We come just to one more in Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation 1 verses 17 and 18, we read this. Jesus says, fear not. And they're so afraid, right? There's so this worship and this doubt mixed together. Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades itself. So when Jesus says, I have all authority, what he's talking about is a cosmic authority that he demonstrated on the cross for his disciples, for his followers, for his own glory to advance his kingdom. And he didn't just do it on the cross, he proved it in the resurrection. There are places in this text and in this chapter and in this book of Matthew where Jesus is um, communicating to us not just that he's a, a normal guy that had some great ideas, that he's a historical figure that should be revered, but that he's the God of the universe. And because of that, he has authority and rule and power. Now, he's not simply just flexing that and saying that, although these passages show he could do that. He tells them that because he has plans for them. He starts in the middle of their worship and their doubt to say, hey, I know you're concerned about a ton of things. Would you just stop for a moment and hear the good news that I have all the power? The one who's in front of you, the one you're responding to, the one that you denied, the one who's now not holding that against you, but tenderly calling you to himself, I have all the power. All the things you're afraid of, all the things you're haunted by, all the things that plague you, all the things that you're anxious about for the future, Jesus has authority over. And he didn't just want us to be beneficiaries of this authority, he actually wants us to be agents of his authority. So he actually now then is going to commission them. It goes from his power to his purposes. Look in verse 19. Go therefore, because of this, there's a connection. It's not just another idea. It's because he has all authority and power. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, he says. So the power leads to his purposes, and his purposes simply are that we would actually align ourselves with Jesus, that we would be about his purposes, that we would do what he came to accomplish in the world. So for Jesus' followers to actually engage with him, right, to be a disciple is to be a follower, to be, to be an apprentice, which we've said is to love what Jesus loves and to do what Jesus did and to trust what he teaches. To love what he loves, to do what he did, and to trust what he teaches is what it means to be one of his followers, what it means to be one of his disciples. And so he's telling us to participate 
with him in his mission to actually rescue people. Remember back in the book of Matthew, he calls the first disciples and he says to them, hey, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And now he's telling them, hey, come and follow me and help other people actually know what it means to follow me as well. And this is what one scholar said. Those who believe in Jesus, who are witnesses to his resurrection, are given the responsibility to go and make real in the world the authority which he already has. This, after all, is part of the answer to the prayer that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. If we pray that prayer like we're taught in the Matthew 6, we shouldn't be surprised if we're called upon to help bring about God's answer to that prayer. So he says he has all power, and then he says, I want you to, to join me in the purposes. When you have authority and power, you use it to defend or protect things that you love. Jesus is using his authority and power to reach people. Remember John 3.16, it's because God loved the whole world. He's expressing his power to defeat the evil around us so that we could actually come into a relationship with him. His power leads to his purposes. And to be a disciple, he has a lot of things. He names kind of two actions that I think become instructive for us. He says, did you notice that? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations and do two things, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe all that I've commanded. Baptism. We actually are going to host a baptism on May 21st for anybody who's interested. And if you want to talk about like what, what is baptism more, we'll love to talk with you. But, but on that day, what we'll be doing is saying, these people follow Jesus already. He is their identity. Baptism is a symbol of what's already happened on the inside. It's a reflection of a new identity. Romans 6 says it's a demonstration or a physical expression that we've died to sin. We were buried and we've been raised to new life. To say go and baptize people is shorthand for, for go and give them the identity that I came to accomplish for them. Go and, go and tell them what I came to make them. Go and teach them who they really are, enemy. Go, go and have followers that actually come underneath my kingship and lordship that their identity becomes not their own self, but someone who's part of the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Identity is uh, tied into baptism. To go and baptize is to say it's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who I'm under their authority. I'm the one who actually has been received by them, that they have forgiven me, and I'm actually going to follow them for the rest of my life. Again, May 21st, we'll talk about that. would love to involve you there. And it's not just identity. He goes on to say, and then instruct them what it means to live in the kingdom. That's what's going on when he says, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So, so to be a follower of Jesus is to have your identity tied to him and, and then to follow the instructions that he gave us. What it means to live a life free from the influence of these false powers, to have your heart and life actually converted and transformed and changed. And, and we know this idea that obedience comes out of love is the way Jesus calls us. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So, so this identity and these instructions, they fit together, but I think the order is super important. When the Bible talks about our obedience or our behavior, it's not obey to be loved and then you can be in a relationship. It's because you are already loved. Now live into that. 
It's not obedience for an identity. It's obedience from an identity. So Jesus says, go and make disciples. Go tell people to follow me. Tell them they can have new life. Tell them that their old way can be set aside. Tell them the bankrupt pursuits of their own pleasure and control and power and approval can be set aside. I have all authority in the universe to give them new and lasting life. Hey, that's good news. It's not just come and follow a bunch of rules. It's come and and have a brand new identity. Come and be baptized. And it's not just a theoretical idea. It actually has teeth and is practical to your real life. It's a real hope for real change to observe all that I have commanded you. Out of that identity now, help them actually live into what it means to be in the kingdom. And Jesus has taught us A ton of things. We'll review some of those in the weeks ahead as we kind of go back a little bit and starting in chapter 21. Jesus is going to teach some really important things to his followers about how to anticipate his return and what it means to wait. At the last week of his life, he gives some really, really key instructions. But he's been talking for chapters, which would be years to his disciples. Just think on the Sermon on the Mount of what it means to actually live into the kingdom values from an identity that's been changed and rescued and redeemed. So he says his purpose is actually to create relational followers that have a brand new identity and that are living out the kingdom implications in their lives, to have their behaviors and their obedience tied to what God actually came to set us free from so that what we say we believe and who we are is actually congruent with the life that we live. That's huge. And it has to do with transformation, it's an identity that changes us and behaviors and actions that match that, that change us. Right? Our church is focused on transformation. What Jesus is saying is, go and make disciples, transformed disciples, who have a new identity and then who obey. So, so his power, his purpose, and then his presence. I told you this would be fast. Look with me in verse 20 again. After he said, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We get different accounts in the different Gospels of what all Jesus taught his followers and how he had some interactions. Different Gospel writers highlight certain things. Every place in the Scripture, we know that Jesus spent about 40 days with his followers. So we don't know if this is the last thing he said and then he ascended or, or this is one of many things. But it's key and strategic that Matthew wants to put the period of his Gospel here at this place. After all that he's taught... After all that Jesus has done, all the demonstrations of his power, all the ways that he related to people, all the healing presence, all the acceptance of the wayward, all the confrontation of the religious establishment, the thing he wants ringing in your ears is that I'm with you. To follow Jesus is a a relational dynamic. It's not a creed that you just say. It's not a catechism that you just follow. It's a living, breathing God, the kind of God who rose from the grave. And he says, as you go, and I know you've got doubts, and I know you're struggling to worship. I know these powers keep haunting you. Would you hear I've defeated those? I have all the power. And I'm inviting you to the purposes that I, I actually had in my heart when the world began, to rescue and redeem a people, to make a bride for myself, to actually see captives set free. I want you to go and tell people they can have hope, they can have a new identity, they can actually live a different way into a different kingdom, not the kingdom of self, but the kingdom of God. And as you go, whether it's Vietnam, or it's Prairie Village, or it's Casey Mo, it's Wyandotte County, it's out of state, it's where you're going to college, wherever it is, 
I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus died, he says, so he could actually be with us forever. He gives us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us so that we're never alone. And in that space, what we see is what God's doing overseas. He wants to do here. He wants to use his people, fill with his spirit, to be agents of change, to be ambassadors for his kingdom, to help other people hear, hey, there, there's a God who actually died in your place to make a way for you to be forgiven and set free. As you were to live into that, I think even this text gives us some application points, right? To say, okay, I'm in. I want to do that. What would it look like? It would look like realizing the power that you've actually been given. To live in light of the resurrection-shaped power and the authority or the command that you have over the other things that taunt and haunt you. To ask God's help, this resurrection kind of power that he's made a footstool of his enemies, that's available to you at midnight. It's available to you in boardroom meetings. It's available to you with you with your kids. It's available to you when you're alone. To, to remember kind of identity since we were born. The world forces on us a way to think about ourselves and others. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to be baptized into me. I, I want your identity to be one that actually set aside the old way, that died to self, was buried and rose again. To stop and ask of the things that you love and pursue, what, what you do and what you trust. Are they in line with who he is and what he's done? If followers do what Jesus does and love what he loved and trust what he teaches, can you just stop and ask, what are, what are you doing? What are you loving? What, what are you trusting? Because you've heard lots of lowercase g gospels your whole life that would promise you a kind of help and a kind of life and a kind of pleasure. Apply this text and would be before you share the good news with somebody else to actually just embrace that identity. And then to submerge yourself into the teachings of Jesus. To actually engage what his kingdom realities are. So many of us lived kind of one arm behind our back spiritually not knowing what God has actually called us to. Not knowing how he's actually instructed us. Pages of scripture give us not just a, a pathway to follow but they're actually life. They're food for our soul. They're honey to our lips. They're living water that actually transform and change us. To be a people that engage the Great Commission is to actually engage the teachings of Jesus robustly. And then to know that you're not alone. To live like you're not alone and the one who's with you again has all power so that when you tell people at the macro or micro level, whether it's to the nations or it's to your neighbor, in those spaces you are sharing the good news of what Christ has done. He ends his gospel account. Matthew wants you to know Jesus, the one we've been talking about, has all power. He involves you in his purposes. And he fills you with his presence so that you're never, ever alone. And as we think about that, the reason why we take communion every week is to remember what Christ did so these things actually nourish us. It gives us time to reflect and think about what Christ has done to actually accomplish these things on our behalf. So I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to take communion. And as we do about his presence and this identity that he gives you, so would you come take communion as a follower of Christ, trusting in him? You tear a piece of the bread off and dip it into the cup. It's a symbol of his broken body and his shed blood. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back. So you can be honest about the places where you feel afraid, where you're uncertain, where maybe you're hurt or wounded. Get things from your prayer. If you are following Jesus, come and take communion. Let me pray for us and then we'll sing. Jesus, we say thank you for what you
lives and even eternity to fully understand of your power, of your purposes, and your presence. Would you now nourish my sisters and my brothers with the good news of that as we ask you to make sense of our world and our life in light of what you've done for us. So fill the room now we pray and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, come when you're ready.